The Be Here Now Network invites you to join Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors for a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. Get the training you need to guide others in their journey with a powerful online training course and in-person teaching events. To learn more, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash GetCertified. This is Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus, your host. And uh, today we have another wonderful offering from Ramdas. But first, um, I want to tout somebody I respect very, very highly. Her name is Sally Kempton, and she's doing, and this is for 1440.org, our wonderful partner. And Sally is doing a workshop a weekend it's in early october so plenty of time still uh to uh, to get over to 1440 which is near santa cruz in this beautiful campus and sally's going to be working with people she's a, an excellent meditation teacher and working on the inner heart and bringing that out that which connects us to the universe, the inner heart. So, uh, yeah, check. Go to 1440.org and check out all of the different offerings that they have. Wonderful workshops galore. Uh, So please go there. And uh, at the same time, um, we, as many of you know, our film, BecomingNobody.com, which traces the arc of Ramdas's life and teachings. And it's really a primer as well on how to deal with that somebody that we create through our identity and roles and is very difficult, uh, can cause us a lot of difficulties on a day-to-day basis, um, a lot of suffering. And uh, this is a Ramdas's wonderful uh, take or perspective, how he can help us move into a perspective that is not caught in this somebodyness, and then we can find out what he means by a nobodyness. Um, in the movie, also there's some wonderful, wonderful um, footage of him around. Uh, death and how we deal with that in this culture and so on it's a it's a i mean obviously i as as you all know as well was a co-producer of the movie and uh, the directors jamie cato and uh, it um, it's been a real pleasure to see this movie it just came out this past weekend as i'm doing it which is the beginning of september um doing this podcast uh, and it's going to be running through the fall in many different places across the country. And you go to becomingnobody.com and you'll see a, you can link to find a theater and you can see uh, where it might be playing near you. If it is not, um, it may come a little bit later. So you got to keep checking back, put your email address in there and you'll get notifications. And also it will be able it will be able to, we will be able to get with anybody who would like to show it in their community. And that's uh, when you sign up uh, to the email list, you you will see a little checkbox. Are you interested in bringing it to your community? And then people will be in touch with you. So um, very proud of, uh, of this movie. And uh, it's getting a lot of great publicity and uh, at the same time, people are, are coming out to see it. And we'd love for you not only to come out and see it, but to help get the word out about it. Okay, down to the talk. So this is a talk from, oh, 1993, July, at Omega in Rhinebeck, New York. And it's a, it's a Q&A that we pulled, and it's got a lot of different really fascinating uh, subjects that people asked Ram Dass about. 
the first one is 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 asking Ramdas what practice that he what do you do what is your practice so aside from what everyone would consider as the usual <laughs> the usual i mean mindfulness using devices like malas um, so mindfulness including meditation and um, centering devices karma yoga so whatever you do that is part of your um, the food that helps you to transform uh, the day-to-day vicissitudes, shall we say, karma yoga, and then, of course, working with attachments, sitting with teachers. But the one that caught my eye, he talked about metaphysical play, playing with planes of reality with consciousness. And now Ramdas talks a lot these days about, uh, and in this movie I just mentioned, by the way, that we all can live on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time. Okay? We can do the thing that we need to do day to day, operating from that I that we are so very used to, which is a, you know, a major somebody. Uh, but at the same time, we can have this other space that is the obvious connection that we have to the divine, however which way you want, however the divine manifests for each one of us. It's different words, it could be a different uh, mystic tradition, but there is another plane that we are operating on that we, part of this spiritual path is to allow that who we are beneath the I and the ego and the story we tell ourselves and that can be um, that awareness of that other plane, of that, uh, shall we say, truer self. That can operate at the same time as this other plane, which is what our normal waking consciousness uh, is, uh, it's how we operate in the world. So I, I love what he says, metaphysical play. So you're kind of playing with all these different planes of reality. Uh, and uh, allowing for them to coexist. It's really quite great. Um, A great practice. Uh, He talks about relationships, uh, and uh, most specifically relationships with uh, people who we have lost and have uh, gone beyond the body. And he talks about a unit of space that is beyond time and space, you know, because we're so addicted to form, and when that form dies, of course, we have tremendous grief and loss. But here's again this this thing of playing with different planes of consciousness, because yes, there's that plane of consciousness of of loss and grief, but at the same time, we can experience the love that we had for that individual is untouched by this. It's untouched by loss. It's, it's, the, um, it's a relationship that w- we start to realize, and that's why it is, it is really important to live on more, more than one plane of consciousness at the same time, because there, that relationship we have with that person touches love, an eternal love, and we can always be in sync with those people we have lost through just going very deep within ourselves into that, as we mentioned before, our more true self, where that love is beyond form. Now, all of this is very difficult, but it's our work. It's our work. And so um, that's what the, the first question was all about. What, what are the different practices that Ram Dass does? And, um, you yeah. Practice makes perfect, if not perfect, at least it allows us to um, to move into more of an uh, awareness. And Ramdas talks here also uh, about awareness being beyond time and space. There's a question around awareness. Um, and uh, it's funny, I was doing a podcast with my friend Duncan Trussell, 
just yesterday we go on each other's podcast mine of course uh, many of you know i do mind rolling and have duncan and many other kinds of people like him teachers and uh, all of my buddhist friends and so many different people it's a pleasure to do and anyhow i was doing something with him um just yesterday and we were talking about spaciousness and awareness and being and, and we're also talking about different planes of consciousness and i said look you can instantly change your state i said let's do it right now and i said okay let's take three deep breaths right into the center of our chest and we did it we can do it right now just take three big breaths in and out You can even put your finger in the center of your chest as you breathe in and out. And one more. And just feel your consciousness going into that place in the center of your chest. And Maybe a little bit of warmth will happen there, a little bit of a buzz, a little bit of feeling open, a little different. And you just let that kind of spread through that whole region. And then you find yourself in a much more, not just spacious, but spacious awareness. And that awareness has no judgment, it has no clinging, it has no desire, it just is. So we can move into that space anytime we want. It's just intention. So some wonderful things from Ram Dass around this. And, uh, it talks about the relation between dualistic practice and non-dual. But um, what really uh, my takeaway from this talk, he talks about like we're in the world and then some stuff happens that's pretty negative. Everything gets taken away, say, and our lives kind of turn to shit. <laughs> and you lose your faith. And then you get despair. And then that dark night of the soul just overwhelms us you know that saint john talks about the dark night of the soul and everything seems so black and dark but then here's a little bit you give yourself a little bit of an up level and that up level is that this dark night is a prerequisite to be in relationship with the spaciousness of what is. And that's, uh, I'm identifying that with that little uh, meditative exercise, breathing into the center of the chest, where you start to, what I call, to identify with the truer part of ourselves, but it's identifying with that, the spaciousness of what is, is what Ramdas calls it. You take that negative experience and you flip it around. And the example he gives is somebody I love. He says, uh, he talks about an example that comes from a man, a, a, a saint in India who left in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, and his name is Swami Ramdas. He said that's the real Swami, Swami Ramdas. So, and the example he gives is Swami Ramdas goes to an ashram to, to uh, get in, a, you know, ask for a room to sleep and be fed and so on. But unfortunately, he got there after the gate was closed. So he had to stay outside the gate on the ground and sleep on the ground. Um, and, of course, in this particular instance, it must have been summer, and there was a lot of mosquitoes. They were biting him up. And instead of what most of us would do, would be to curse ourselves to death, and find where is the mosquito repellent in my mosquito net tent. I can't stay here for one more second. And, of course, 
that's kind of our knee-jerk place that we go. Swami Ramda says, he looks up, or within, rather, and says, thank you so much, Ram, for, for these mosquitoes that are keeping me awake so I can remember you. Right? That's his flip. That's his knee-jerk. That's where he goes. Food for thought, huh? What else is in this thing? So much material. It's amazing. Um, oh, yeah, there's stuff around. People asking about being a celebrity. Uh, he talks about it being a purification exercise. And then there's a neat thing around Jewish lineage, which I thought was really inter- interesting because that's where my lineage is and my heritage is. And many of us who were in front of Neem Karoli Baba in the early days, certainly Ramdas, me, Krishnadas, and others. And so somebody asked him about this, and he said what he gets is, is the idea of the one behind the many, right? And the love of learning, which probably is a major reason many of us started studying, you know, Eastern mysticism, and a deep feeling for suffering. <laughs> I love that. Oh, God. So that's kind of cool stuff, too. So that's, um, this is... Uh, Wonderful Q&A from Omega from 93. And uh, it's chock full of different uh, questions and ideas and uh, responses from Ramdas. So it's very great. All right, well, that's it. Uh, this is Ramdas here and now. And uh, go to uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com and you'll find the Here and Now podcast. You'll find my mind-rolling podcast. You'll find Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Krishna Das and Lama Surya Das and on and on and on. All right, and we'll see you next week. She would like to know what spiritual practices I practice. Me. Him. Well, part of it I've just described to you. Part of it is metaphysical play. It's playing with planes of reality and playing with consciousness. Part of it is the mindfulness things that, um, in terms of holding an awareness of moment-to-moment phenomena. And as I get lost into the phenomena and lose my mindfulness, then there are devices in me that take over, that bring me back into it. There are de- like this is a device, it's a technique, the beads, doing a mantra. It's a device, like I can be standing in a supermarket at the checkout line, this is my usual example, at the checkout line. And there is a person, three people up from me, it's late in the day and I'm tired. Person up in front has a huge grocery and it all gets through and they give this total the clerk gives the total and then this person starts to fill out a check not only fill out a check but fill out the other part of the check too you know the the check part you know the the record part and i am like you know how you turn into something else (laughs) and at that moment i feel in my finger the beads and I hear rom, 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 and the whole thing turns into a dream. It turns into Leela, into play. And boy, that me getting angry is so funny. It's like, well, I caught myself again, taking it as real. I play games with my guru because my basic method is Guru Kripa or Grace of the Guru, that strange looking gentleman up there. And um, he's got his foot up down there, yeah. And, um, He and I sort of play hide and seek all the time. He keeps coming to me as people like, I'll bet Ramdas won't see me in this one. See, and I think I'm meeting you. I don't realize you're Maharaji in drag that's come to test me about my practice, see? But now I see who you are. You can't fool me. I know who you think you are. That's your problem. I know who you are, you see. That's part of my practice.
you hear? I mean, my practice is a weave of life. This is my practice. I mean, it's very hard not to get caught in an ego trip about this. I mean, will you love me? Am I good? Do I know anything? Is it adequate? Is you, will the answer please you? And, you know, all that stuff. And it's interesting just to work with it. It's like a fire. It's like a fire of purification. So what I often find are the things that are fiery for me, I tend to go towards to work with rather than playing safe. You can feel the pull for freedom is stronger than the pull for safety, for the ego. That the pull to get free leads you to the edge of things. So working with the issues that are on my edge all the time, power, sex, money, things like that. Just the common variety. <laughs> and my guru said in 1973, Ram does give up sex and money and you'll know God. But what does he know? <laughs> I think something was lost in the translation. I think he really, <laughs> I think it was translated by a righteous jerk, you know. But... So I'm working at it. And what I realized, he didn't mean give up sex and money. He meant give up your attachment to sex and money. <laughs> so I work with it. I mean, this is the play I have of life, you know. And I used to count how soon I'd get enlightened. And I stopped counting. Because why spend my time with the future? This is it. And I'm just getting as close to my truth as I know how to get every minute that I can. And I have people around me busting me all the time when I don't. I mean, sweet Jai, who sings beautiful songs to God, he's my colleague. We work together in many, many different enterprises. Boy, try to get away with anything with him. He's big. <laughs> then, um, I'll do things like go and sit with a teacher that I, that would open me to another method. That's very useful. And then I bring like teachers here to teach on the staff so I can learn. That's part of my practice. Like working with Danny and Tara about the relation between the psychological and the spiritual and planes of consciousness and the cortex and awareness and all these things. These are very profound um, yana yoga, the using the mind to beat the mind. And this is a practice and bringing them here confronts me with these things and forces my work on myself. I mean, you could look at me as an eclectic or you could look at me as a dilettante. Or I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Um, I find like working with people as they're dying is one of the most profound spiritual practices that I could possibly have. It's like being in the presence of, of, uh, of truth because the truth of the process of dying and people have nothing to hide and it all opens and there's this incredible opening and we just feel like we've entered into a space of just such presence together. Often, often. And I just come and I say, boy, that is grace. That was touching the living truth. That was touching it. That's a spiritual practice. Songs to Hanuman, when I drive my car, you know, I'll try the radio, but finally, even, I mean, I still love, I play the cello and I used to love, I love classical music, but I'll listen and finally, I just want to turn it off and sing to Hanuman, sing the Hanuman Chalisa. And I've watched things change over time and I've watched myself be phony holy and then grow into it, you know, grow into where I really do want to sing the Hanuman. I just don't think I ought to sing the Hanuman. Do you see the difference? It's like sitting down and you want to meditate. You don't say, okay, I'm going to meditate. People say I ought to meditate. I'd say, don't go out and, you know, don't meditate. Promise you, you won't meditate for weeks, but I want to. No, you don't want it enough. Is that dealing with your question? Okay. Talk about the relationship of keep, uh, talk about keeping a relationship with a loved one who is no longer living. Possibilities of it. 
My feeling is that the term relationship short shrifts what that thing really is that would lead you to ask that question. That when you touch somebody in love, even for a moment, there is a way in which you have come into a unitive space together. You are in love. You are in the space of love together. And that has no time and no space, and it has nothing to do with death. And what happens is the mind gets so attached to the form through which you touched that place of love that you get, in a way, addicted to the form. And if the form dies, you feel this incredible grief as if you have lost this this relational, this relationship. And after some time, a person that has grieved openly and honestly and truly with it will in their quiet moments start to experience the existence of that love untouched. And it's as if, like... Like Maharaji died in 73, and he was the most important thing in my life. I mean, he had opened my heart. He had touched me with unconditional love. And it was amazing the sequence I went through. Because first I held on to his pictures, and then I held on to the stories about him, and I wrote a book about the stories of him. And then slowly I started to just be with the qualities of him instead of the historical person. And then I started to feel this kind of just presence. And this presence started to thrill me. And the presence would be outside of me and then inside of me, then outside of me, then inside of me. And I began to lose the differentiation. And when Surya Das in the meditation says, may your wisdom mind and mine remain inseparable. I started to experience that oneness that is awareness, that is love, that is presence. So in that sense, I think that relationships that touch love are eternal. Go ahead. No, because I'd be a phony. I mean, he said to me, be like Gandhi. So I got little glasses, but it didn't make me like Gandhi, you know? I mean, it was like, you can't phony it. You can't imitate it, you know? I was just hanging out with, like his quality of giggle. He has a cosmic giggle. He laughs. He gets like that. He's very loving. He's very silent and deep in the bottomless ocean. So those qualities... So I'm busy and I'm just in the middle of something where I'm very righteous and absolutely right. And I hear him giggling. I just hear the giggle. I feel the cosmic giggle in the air, you know, like thunder or something. And I just break up. I mean, I just see myself as such an absurd, poignant entity. How can you not love him? Uh, that's the way I'm talking about. Is that dealing with your question? The belief in karma and reincarnation. Well, the way I figure about it is if this is real, that's real. But since this is suspect, so is that. So if you think you are, if you think you exist as a separate entity, karma and reincarnation are real. When you see through you, you'll see that it was all part of that which you saw through, and nothing really happened anyway. So where were you going to go to? So it's all like, it's all this kind of little dance in time, except you aren't in time, or part of you isn't in time, or awareness isn't in time. So it's just the dance of time, of karma and reincarnation, and that's just like moments, flickers, eye blinks, our lifetimes. I mean, you could be living lifetimes right now. I mean, this is a lifetime, and this is a lifetime, and this is a lifetime. And they have a lot of similarity, do you notice? Because you carry a lot from one lifetime over to the next one. You notice how con continuous your sense of yourself is from when you ask the question to now? Isn't it amazing? It's like deja vu, you see? And it's going on and on and on and on, see? And that's what lives are like. That's what reincarnation's like. They're just this brrrr in which they keep projecting 
the next, the projecting the next, projecting the next, and this kind of law of dependent origination, this kind of just keeps creating itself. But in the course of it comes the evolution of awakening, of awareness, of extricating identity from that which is in time. And as awareness is free, then all of reincarnation and karma were part of the dream. So I'd say it's real and it's not real, or it's relatively real. Okay. I've never had experiences of my reincarnations. People have told me they see my reincarnations or, you know, my, my guru would say disquieting things like, didn't you know Lincoln? You know, <laughs> Jesus, you know, where, what's going on, you know? So I don't know. Uh, I mean, I just don't know. I don't know. This moment is so interesting. I don't care. That's it. That's it. I, I do have a very, very profound sense of the cont of the continuity would be a time term of the existence of awareness independent of time and space and that gives me considerable peace and makes the dance of life and death more fascinating i'm fascinated to see what's going to die you know will i be sorry to leave the world no no, and I won't be happy to leave the world either. I mean, neither. I don't really care now. I don't really care. This is so rich and so beautiful and so graceful. And I'm beginning to love people so much. And there is so much suffering. And there is so much compassionate heart. And the whole thing is a wash in it reaching for each other and seeing the beauty and the majesty of the process. And uh, this form is just a part of that dance, and it comes and goes. I find it fascinating. I mean, I really, you know, I, I love this. You know, this, my hands are getting, my feet are getting more look like my father's. I, when I take care of my father when he was 90, you know, I look and there's all these veins and wrinkles and spots. And it's like, a, it's really a thing of great beauty. You know, if I think it's my hand, I'll freak. But if I, you know, just look at it as an aesthetic experience. It's a profound thing, you know, because it is, after all, just a decaying body. What's, why, why not? What's wrong with that? So, yeah, no, I, I, I cherish life, but I feel quite ready to die. true yes how do i see the relation between dualistic practices and non-dualism when i was a uh, a teenager and not a great athlete i used to go out on the end of the diving board of the raft at my father's summer home and i would stand there to do a back dive i'd stand on the end of the board maybe for 20, 30 minutes, going up and down, saying, all right, I'm one, two, three, four. <laughs> and I would just be, because the pain of landing on my back, you know, and I didn't know whether I would get it over, arch it enough. And... There is a way in which, um, because of the nature of the human incarnation and the, the tools that one has as a human being that thinks they are their senses and their thinking mind, dualistic practices are practices of purification. They're practices that lighten a lot of things. They extricate you from certain planes that you were deeply stuck at and open you to other planes. And what I experience is that as you move towards the union with the one, 
and get right up to the edge of that between the two and the one, which is the ultimate in devotional practice, for example. It's where you're making love to the beloved and you're just a hair's breadth away from the merging. That that's like standing on the edge of the diving board. And that um, many, much of the history of dualistic yoga is that the highest devotees don't want to dive off the board because they are experiencing so much ecstasy of the dualism that will be gone if they enter into non-dualism. Because when you enter into the one, there's no one and there's no two and there's no nothing or there's everything or however you want to say it. So I see when they say, like, from my Judaism upbringing, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I don't figure it means the Lord is one plus me. You know, it's the Lord is one, and this is one, and one is one. And one isn't two, one is one. And, but when you're in one, it's zero. That's the way I play with it. Is that dealing with your question at all? Okay, you trust your intuitive, the deepest intuitive wisdom you have, and you say, what shall I do? And it says, do this. And then you do it, and it completely falls apart. What do you do then? <laughs> well, now, what choices do you have? I mean, what choices do you have at that point? It, it shakes your faith. Then what? You can assume there's a higher teaching, which I'm trying to do. Do you think you can try to do something to overcome shaking faith? I mean, I'm not being a wise guy. I'm just going through the exercise with you of saying, like, look at it and say, what could I do? I mean, so my faith shakes. Whatever that shakes was something that was shakable. Whatever is true isn't shakable. So, okay, I don't believe in that kind of intuitive voice anymore. Now what will I do? Now I got to make another decision. What will I do? I mean, you just listen again. I don't know what else to do. Aurobindo says you take one step and you fall on your face. And you get up and you brush yourself off and you look sheepishly at God and then you take another step. And you fall on your face. And you get up and he says, this is the spiritual journey. See? It's one step. It's like those people that do prostrations all the way to, you know, you feel like you got a bad deal with a used car from a salesman who took you on a ride. But that salesman wasn't promising you worldly goods. And you're talking about worldly things. You didn't fall on your face spiritually. You just fell on your face worldly-wise. It's like Job. I mean, everything's taken away. It all turns to shit. Now what? You know? When, when do you start to go like that? Or, and then you lose your faith, and it falls apart, and you despair. And that despair, that dark night, is the prerequisite for the next level of being in relationship to the spaciousness of what is. So you take it, and you take the negative experience, and you keep flipping it around. And you say, I mean, it's like uh, Swami Ramdas, the real one, was, <laughs> he was in, uh, he came to a temple and it was late at night and the gates were locked and he had to lie out, stay outside overnight and the mosquitoes were biting him all night. And he said, oh, thank you, Ram, for keeping me awake to remember you. Now, most of us would say, Jesus, where's my repellent? You know, like, what, what am I doing? This is terrible. That's all right. And it's interesting just start to flip stuff in life. Flip it. Say, what's my game anyway? Because you look at people that seem to be winning everything in life. See, if you got that and then it led to this and led to that and, led, and you see them up there in the world and they're in a place where they can't afford to flicker about even questioning it at all. They can't question it because they're, they're too juiced on the rewards in the worldly system. You were saved from that. It all fell apart. <laughs> See? 
See? The ones that got the car that didn't break down, that's the lemon, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> Any wisdom from a young woman about to have her first child and how to guide a new infant coming into the world without interfering? Without interference. I would say your work on yourself is the greatest gift you give to your child. And that the less you are... Um, the less you get caught in the drama underlying that question, the more able you will be to be with that other being through the dance of biological dependency and social protection and socialization training and so on without trapping that being in their own separateness. As long as you are in your own separateness as mother, then you see this as child. And there's this great image in the devotional literature of Krishna, who is an avataric form, who, who's born fully conscious. And he's born and his mother is rocking him at one point. And he opens his mouth and she looks into his mouth and there are the stars and the planets and the universe and she freaks. And then it said, out of compassion, he once again veiled her eyes with mother love. And it's the beauty of the feeling of the love and the precious protection and also seeing that that's your dharma, to be a mother without being trapped in motherness and honor your child without getting lost in the storyline so that the two of you can just share awareness through the whole process. That's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. If I enjoy being a celebrity. There was one image that I was in, um, I was lecturing in Miami Beach and um, <laughs> somehow the advertising was had done something strange. And I was walking down the aisle and a number of women who had um, those kind of bird nest hairdos and they were grabbing at the buttons of my jacket <laughs> to get a souvenir. And I thought, I don't think I'm going to like this. <laughs> um, I'll tell you, there are certain ways in which... Um, Ram Dasness is a good gig. It's okay. And there are certain ways in which it's... it's uh, the fortunate thing is, for me, is that I am what you'd call a big fish in a little pond. That you only have to go about a mile from here and I'm totally irrelevant. Which is really nice. So that I can always get away from myself, from, from that guy, from Ram Dass, you know, which is really nice. Um, the asset of it is... And it's, a, it's an interesting thing from a sadhana point of view, is that um, the image of this person is somebody who is um, loving and trustworthy, a good person. It's a nice karmic image, and it's built over many years. And because I'm very human, it's a constant demand on me to keep growing into this being. It's like a purification exercise of the way in which people approach me draws from me those qualities that they seek. And I often feel like people get from me a funny way more than I get from myself because the purity of their hearts draws out of me the purity of my being. And I really love being trusted and being loved. I think it's a wonderful thing. I wish it for everybody. So, and I, the kind of celebrityness isn't like Bob Hope type stuff. It's, it's, it's really connected with love. I mean, the people that I meet in airports or in airplanes, are, are, there's a great quality of love. And I really feel I've gotten, you know, an incredibly graceful ride this time.
have I dealt with numbness, a kind of a deep psychological numbing? Yes, I have. And um, fortunately, I have been um, deep enough into my practices and had enough guidance to see the numbness as merely another experiential state to be worked with in meditation. In other words, it's like um, a, a, a comparable statement is I was studying with Joseph Goldstein, who's a me wonderful meditation teacher, and I experienced this, I was maybe in my 10th day of sitting, I experienced this peace that surpasseth all understanding. You know, it was just delicious. And I went to Joseph and I said, thank you, Joseph. This is what I've always wanted. And it's just so wonderful. And I feel so great. I just want to thank you. I really honor you. And, I, and he said, that's absolutely fine. Now go back and follow your breath. See? And they have told me the same thing when I feel a numbness or the deadness, because experience of any state at all is just another experience. And when you, sometimes it so fills the room, it's these qualities, these uh, uh, mental qualities, uh, mind states, mind states, where the whole, it's like you're in a gray room and it's all gray, like a depression, a good depression, you know, it's all gray. And somebody says, follow your breath and you hear it from within the depression, you know, follow your breath. <laughs> and it's hard. I mean, you know how hard I hear how hard it is to hear. And that's where your trust in your teachers and your methods are very useful. You know, if everything is illusion, why compassion? Well, if everything illusion, if, if everything is illusion, compassion is illusion also. But as long as everything seems like it's real at all, then there's compassion. And that's real too. When things disappear, things disappear, including anything. But compassion, it would be one of the last to go because it is the, it's the unity coming into manifestation of form in which it's all still interrelated with one another so that your suffering is the suffering and this heart process is that heart process. It's not kindness or pity. It's a feeling of uh, it, it taking care of itself, it relieving its own suffering. It's the one. Compassion is within the one. It's the one healing itself or re reorganizing itself into deeper harmony. Now that's all still dream. But... Uh, Within the dream, there is compassion. And the root of the dream is compassion, but at the end of it, there's no nothing. There's no suffering, no compassion. So there is and there isn't. Or the answer is, why not? Yeah. Um, gurus, do you need one? And if I hadn't met Maharaji, I might be free at this very moment. <laughs> 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 I, I have no idea what that hypothetical, how to deal with that hypothetical. I'd probably be a really anal retentive psychologist with, with tenure at Harvard at this point. Just, uh, I would have been a success instead of what I am today. Uh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't know how to measure that hypothetical one. As far as gurus are concerned, um, there are certainly enough examples in history of people that have become free without a physical plane guru, somebody that is embodied. There are the understanding of the nature of the guru is a, uh, a it's like a doorway into formlessness or a doorway through. It's much like the concept, like in India, my guru kept saying to the Westerners, what are you doing here? Stay home. Christ is your guru. This is a Hindu saying to, you know, Christ is your guru. What are you doing here? And the, the concept of Christ, I mean, when you look at another human being, what do you see? You get some, 
sensations to your eyes and some conceptual models. This is a woman or a man or my guru or something. But the consciousness of Christ does the same thing in terms of its ability to be a symbol of a doorway through to something and can, if it's purely connected, can awaken something in you which moves your journey. It mirrors for you where you're not, is one way of saying it. But it can happen on the physical plane, on the astral plane, and ultimately, as Ramana Maharshi said, God, Guru, and Self are one and the same. And many people have found it through just doing the kind of stuff Surya was doing, was saying, who's aware? What's aware of what? Just going back in and meeting the inner wisdom which is the same thing. Because when Maharaji said something, the what had happened was it resonated so with the deepest truth in myself. I mean, I didn't do it, as we already told you, but it resonated so deeply in me that was I listening to that inner place or was I listening to, if he said something, if, he, if all he represented didn't work inside me, I don't think I would have I wouldn't have made that connection. So it was some connection between the inner and the outer that happened at that point. And I really think a lot of people use the inner to get to the same place. I really do. Sir in the back. I said I am the way, the truth, and the light. What did he mean? And would you ever say that? I am the way, the truth, and the light. Well, I'd want the tape recorder turned off. <laughs> so I could publish first. I <laughs> uh, would I no, I certainly uh, not now. I, I mean, yes, sure, why not? I am the truth, the way and the light. See, I always, the fun of, of, and I was, we may read some holy stories this week, and, and I thought I'd try to work with Savitri, which is a great story from the Mahabharata, perhaps this week. Um, but in all these holy books, Bibles of different traditions, usually they are trying to remind you of the many levels of reality. And therefore, in the, in the, in the storyline, the question is, when you hear the words, are you hearing the words of Jesus or are you hearing the words of the Christ? And if it's written down by a disciple who only sees Jesus but doesn't know the Christ, the Christ may say the words of the Christ, but it's heard as the words of Jesus. And the words of Jesus then are used to persecute other people you don't follow this guy, you're, you know, off with your head or whatever. And the Christ is the same thing as Buddha consciousness. It's the I am the way. I, sure, I mean, it's that, that, and we all are. So in the sense we all are, I could. Right. Do you want to, you know? There was a... A great moment many years ago when I was, um, I have a brother who's been through a lot of emotional upset and he had a very messianic period, which has lasted about 40 years. And um, at one point he was in a, um, a hospital and I went to visit him and I had just come back from India and I had a beard and I was in a dress and I was barefoot and I had a lot of beads and my brother was in a blue suit with a necktie and he was locked up in a mental hospital. And the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist wouldn't allow my brother to be seen unless the psychiatrist was present. So the three of us were in the room. The psychiatrist was in his white coat with his clipboard. My brother was in his blue serge suit and I was in my dress and my beads and my beard. And it was a, surrealistic moment and my brother and I were trying to assess whether the psychiatrist would ever know he was God and the psychiatrist was having no part of it he was just 
writing on his clipboard, he would not enter into the discussion at all about whether he himself would ever know he was God. And so my brother and I were having a very lucid and lovely, very far out conversation because my brother's mind is extraordinary. I mean, he's an extraordinary mind. And I said, so as a time of the visit to be over, he says, I don't understand. He said, look at you, look at me. And he said, in a, in a minute, they're going to let you out. And me, they're going to keep locked up. He said, I, I don't understand that. And I tried to figure out how to say it to him. And I said to him, are you Christ? And he said, yes. I said, well, so am I. And he said, you don't understand. I said, that's why they're locking you up. <laughs> you know, the minute you tell somebody they're not Christ and you are, watch out. But if you see everybody as Christ, you're home free. You know, it's just really when you put other people down, they lock you up. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, how do you relate your Jewish roots to your spiritual path? My guru just came in drag again. And he said, how do you relate your Jewish roots to your spiritual path? Well, the short form of the story, because it's quite a long story, and I've got a three-hour tape of a lecture I gave at the University of Judaism in Beverly Hills two years ago called Judaism and Spirituality. But the short form is that, um, that I grew up as a social political Jew and um, with no real spiritual hit from Judaism. And um, after taking drugs and connecting to some spiritual reality, at that moment, it would have been interesting had I had a, an entree into Jewish mysticism, I would have turned to Rabbi Nachman or something like that. But instead, I ended up with the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Gita and the whole Eastern trip. And knowing that I still had unfinished business somehow to understand what a genetic or what a social, cultural, historical identity meant, what lineage that, what that lineage meant. And um, for a long time, I answered the question by saying what I got from my Jewish lineage was um, a feeling that there was one behind the many, uh, a love of uh, learning, and a uh, deep feeling for suffering. I felt that's what I got. But... Um, when I did this lecture, when I got invited to do this lecture, I started to delve into um, Jewish literature. And um, I was approaching it now as a universalist. Instead of as a fallen Jew trying to figure out where I was, I was exploring it as a universalist to look at it as a set of spiritual practices. And I saw the incredible beauty of it as, a, as a, a set of practices to constantly remind you of the presence of the spiritual dimensions of reality and um, the rituals. And I, because I had grown up seeing the halakhic laws as very oppressive, patriarchal things. And now I saw that if you loved God and you wanted to remember God every minute, there was this set of, of 613 instructions telling you how to do that. And I saw that as a very helpful guide at that point. Um, so I became, I saw the way in which eso, exoteric Judaism had gotten lost into um, well, uh, this is more complicated. It's a really hard question for me to answer because Judaism focuses on uh, tikkun olam, on the, on the making the earth healed into God, really. And it focuses on um, community and family and life here. 
And I find that a fascinating yoga. That's like karma yoga. That's, it's like karma yoga. And at one point, and I was doing an outline for a book I thought I might do around this topic. I just thought I wasn't old enough. But um, I was asking, well, what is, am I a good Jew? Huh? Somebody called Ram Dass, all this stuff, am I a good Jew? I thought of the different ways you became a good Jew. You could live in Israel. That's all you had to do because, because in the diaspora, you just got to go back to the homeland, then the Messiah comes, so you're covered. So if you've done that, you've done what you need to do. You don't even have to be Jewish. You just got to go live there and you, you've got it covered. That's one way. Then another way is to be a student of the Talmud and the Torah. And that's certainly a legitimate way to be a good Jew. Then there's a way by being concerned with the community, giving charity. My father was a good Jew in that sense. He didn't study the Talmud, but he, he was a really good Jew. You know, philanthropies, Jewish appeal. But I looked at all of them, and I looked at what the essence of the game was, and the game was to remember and stay in an intimate relationship with God. I thought, that's what my whole life is about. And that's the essence of what it's about. So in essence, I think I am a very good Jew, even though I got there through Hindu and Buddhist practices. Do you hear that? That's how I play with it. Okay. I'm remembering a moment when I was sitting with uh, uh, Goenka, who was a Vipassana teacher. And uh, I had been meditating long and hard, and I started to get this heat and this incredible uh, pressure and burning sensation and brilliance of light up in my third eye. And I went to him to tell him this. And he said, oh, that's stuff you don't need. Go out in the garden and hold out your arm and send it down your arm out. And uh, then watch it. And I went in the garden and I did that. And this blue light poured out of my fingertips. And um, he treated it like it was a problem. And I had gone to him with pride which is the same situation. It's a situation that I had uh, done a lot of uh, hatha yoga and a lot of pranayama and worked very hard to awaken kundalini. And I saw that all of the paths lead to exactly the same place. And if your faith in any of the methods is enough, you just keep doing the method and it'll take you there. And going back and forth between methods, which have different interpretations of phenomena, um, could give you a headache. <laughs> and it takes some, I mean, like when I go to a Vipassana course, I used to take a picture of Maharaji and I keep it under my pillow, which was a no-no. And then when nobody was looking, I'd sneak it out for a quick bhakti hit. See? And then I thought, what do I want to cheat for? I mean, when you're doing a method, do it. And when you're doing it, then your guru is nothing but a set of phenomena that are arising in your consciousness. And the best thing to do is to not be attached to them, let it go. And yet I love him as much as life itself. And so I've learned how when you're doing a method to surrender into that method and trust it, because I do understand the way in which at the deepest truth, the methods are not in contradiction, but they do focus on different parts. And so you just do an intuitive process. And this is just another part of it. The headache, the mindfulness, the energy, all of it is just process. Just keep on with it. I mean, it seems like a very dynamic process you're going through. And what you may end up is hearing something from your Sufi teacher, something from your Vipassana teacher. And out of it, coming into an awareness that just sees all of this, Sufi teachers, Vipassana teachers, methods, all of it, as waves on this ocean of awareness. And you just see it, including headaches. It's all just the phenomena of the universe arising and you just, oh, there's my confusion. There's my wishing it were something. There's my hoping my Vipassana teacher can save me. There's my trusting my Sufi teacher. There's my Sufi teacher's personality. There's my, there's that model. There goes that model. There goes that model. Here's this headache. I mean, you just see it as all just a set of phenomena within a process. I'm okay. saying it's all process, including your indecision, or you're going back and forth.
And it doesn't matter which one you do. Flip a coin and do it. You know, flip a coin and if it comes up Sufi, go be a Sufi. And if it comes up Vipassana, go be a Vipassana until something else happens. That doesn't satisfy most people. It's amazing how... how. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.